Hi there, my name is Heather Dirks, and you're listening to my podcast, Boots. I started this podcast because I wanted a way to make my novel Strike Boat available for free to the listener. When I was writing Strike Boat, I said to myself, you can't write a anti-capitalist novel without having a way of sharing it for free with the listener. So this podcast is my way of doing it. So I am a Canadian author. This is my first published novel, and it is written in a very strange time in the uh, history of Canada. I released it in October of 2021, and I am going to read it here for you now for free. So without further ado, here is episode one, prologue, Strike Vote. By Heather Dirks. Forward. The following takes place in a fictional version of Mount Bridges, Ontario. Any similarities to any real-life person, place, or thing are entirely coincidental. Light is winning. Prologue 2019. Some called them the elite, the 0.1%, the technocracy. And that morning, they were gathering, the wealthiest citizens of the world. Between the handful or so of billionaires and even one rumored trillionaire who were coming together to meet that morning, some were known, their names as familiar to the masses as A-list movie stars, but some were completely anonymous, shadowy figures, ghost men, whose existence was only speculated about on social media chat rooms, never confirmed. The place where they met was the last place on earth that anyone would ever expect them to meet. They met in a nondescript gray industrial building that blended in from the front with a thousand others of its kind in the factory district around Milton, Ontario, Canada, just a few short miles from Toronto's Pearson Airport. The front of the building had been carefully designed to look inconspicuous. From the street, it looked bland and ordinary just another run-of-the-mill factory building God knows what for the global supply chain. But in back, hidden from the view of the commoners and accessible only by way of a gated passageway controlled by the finest security technology, was an entrance where the splendor of the building's opulence shifted to something magnificent. For those that made it through security, for those with credentials that placed them amongst the wealthiest and most privileged of humans, Behind the building's blank facade, there was an oasis of luxury so splendid that it positively dripped with status and prestige. In front of the ornate chalet-like entrance was a beautiful tropical flower garden that was almost indescribably lush and fragrant. The scent of jasmine emanated from flowers that were so exotic in origin they had no business blooming in Canada at all apart from the tender care and costly upkeep they received. The exquisite bloom surrounded a golden statue in the shape of an upthrust fist with the letters flag engraved into the plinth. The statue was eight feet high and sculpted of solid gold. Phallic it was, and strikingly. Beside it, a sleek black helicopter, adorned with the same golden logo, sat on a concrete pad, poised and waiting for its owner, Eric Cochran, to arrive. The security gate snicked open, sliding back soundlessly to admit one after another of a series of expensive, 
chauffeur-driven vehicles. They entered the compound and deposited their pampered occupants into the care of the library concierge who waited at the door to greet them, allowing them entrance into the private inner sanctum where the common person never trod. The concierge's name was Andrew Summers, and as he stood in his suit at the front door, he went over the morning's instructions in his head. Don't speak unless spoken to. Be courteous. Don't make eye contact. Open their doors, carry their baggage, get them a drink, show them to the boardroom. Those were the instructions Miss Jennings had given him, and so far, he thought he was doing a decently fair job. The boardroom was filling up nicely. The white humans gathering inside were as comfortable as he could make them. The parking lot had taken on the appearance of a showroom of the world's most expensive vehicles, but it was the arrival of the boss man himself, Eric Cochran, that had Andrew Summers sweating. Cochran was one of the dark ones. He was one of the shadowy figures who preferred to remain anonymous on the world stage. But Summers knew his name all right, because Summers came from the streets. Working his way up through the low-level criminal syndicates, running dope, fencing hot product, smuggling, he'd met the right people and made all the right impressions until he'd worked his way up into FLAG, which was the biggest criminal syndicate of them all. Some of the rules of the street still applied. Rule number one was, you don't say shit about what goes on at FLAG. And if you have any further questions, please see rule number one. This was a policy that Summers understood. His reputation for being a man who did not say shit was well known. In fact, it was the leading quality that had propelled his rise into the ranks of flag. He knew about Cochrane because Cochrane was the guy that even the big league bikers that ran the Ontario crime scene whispered about. They were afraid of him because Cochrane had more power than God or so Andrew Summers had been led to believe. And here Summers was, in a jacked-up monkey suit, waiting for the big man himself. The custom caddy rolled in. That was the make that Miss Jennings had told him to watch for. Summers nod on his thumbnail, watching the caddy roll past the helipad, squinting through the tinted windshield, trying to determine if there was more than one occupant. It didn't look like there was a chauffeur, so instead of being delivered to the entrance, Cochran was parking the caddy himself. That must mean he was... Shit. Summers realized belatedly that he had screwed up already. He spat out a crescent shard of thumbnail, wiped his hands on his pants, and scurried out to the caddy, bringing himself up sharply outside the driver's door and standing at the ready. The driver's side window was open. Summers could see a fleshy forearm with a light dusting of freckles under little gold hairs lined by the sun, sitting on the armrest, but he couldn't see Cochran himself in the shadowy interior of the vehicle. Summers cleared his throat. Sir, Mr. Cochran, sir, welcome. My name is Summers, and I'm quite pleased to meet you. If you'll follow me, I'll escort you to the boardroom, where a number of your associates are already gathering, and of course... If you have any luggage or bags, I'll be happy to carry them for you. Silence from the caddy. Summer stood for what felt like a long time with the sun glinting off the chrome of the caddy, making him squint. A massive diamond on the big man's baby finger caught his eye. He busied himself by trying not to stare at it. 
but the cost of that thing. Summers couldn't help thinking that it could feed the whole neighborhood he'd grown up in for life. It was hard, very hard, to keep a bland expression on his face, but he managed. A feeling of scrutiny emanated from inside the car. Summers had the sense of himself being weighed and evaluated, sized up, judged. Sweat broke out on his forehead, and an unpleasant rivulet ran down his back, making him conscious of the layers he wore under the hot July sun. He struggled manfully to retain his composure, but the silence dragged on interminably. Suddenly, the snap of a chrome Zippo lighter sounded from inside the car. Summers flinched. He heard a dry, rasping chuckle. Then the sound of inhaling was followed by a thick plume of brandy-scented smoke that blew out of the car to waft into Summers' face. Well, then I guess you better open the goddamn door, genius. Summers jumped to obey. The big man began to emerge. First one snakeskin boot, then the other, then a silver-tipped walking stick that planted itself on the pavement. A pendulous belly swung down into the trough of the open thighs, and then Cochran put his hand, the one that wore the big diamond, on his knee to heave himself to a standing position. Summers heard a wheeze issue forth from the barrel of a chest as Cochran rose to his full height. He had time to register that Cochran was several inches taller than he was himself before Cochran swung a briefcase at him out of nowhere, catching Summers in the gut with it and knocking him nearly off balance. Instinctively, Summers' arms rose up to encircle the case, hugging it against himself and noticing too late that his mouth hung open, slack. He snapped it shut. Cochran chuckled again, then strode off toward the front door, taking one last haul on his cigar before tossing it, smoldering, into the ornate flower bed. Carefully, Summers closed the door of the caddy before following. He ran to get ahead, scurried to open the front door, and stood with his back to the glass, holding it open. He was rattled, all right. He took a breath to regain some composure. Sir, if you'll just follow me, sir, I'll escort you to the boardroom, where, as I've said, your colleagues are already gathered. And if you just... I know where the goddamn boardroom is, genius. I designed this shithole. Why don't you make yourself useful and get me a drink? With that, Cochran wrenched his briefcase out of Summers' grip and stomped down the hallway that led to the boardroom, leaving Summers behind him in the shadows of the foyer. Fuck me, Summers thought. That went well. On the subject of drinks, at least, he had been briefed. He bustled to the utility bar, poured the very expensive Lafrag scotch over ice the way Miss Jennings had shown him that Mr. Cochran liked it, and then busted his ass with it back to the boardroom. Inside, to put it accurately, were nine of the wealthiest humans in the world. Their combined wealth was staggering, incomprehensible to the average person. They themselves were a blight that fed on the resources of the planet, both human and mineral, sucking up vast swaths of life-giving abundance meant to be shared amongst all and siphoning it directly into their own insatiable gullets. Together, the nine souls, if they had such a thing left inside of them, in the boardroom, owned as much of the Earth's resources, 
translated into liquid assets as half of the Earth's landmass contained. And that was before Eric Cochran walked into the room. Nobody knew Cochran's true wealth. Some in the room on the flag board had an inkling, like Sir Raleigh Kincaid, owner of Manicole Fuels and many other enterprises, who sat smoking a pipe and browsing the Wall Street Journal on his tablet, and who was perhaps the second wealthiest man in the room after Cochran. Beatrice Fillmore, sitting at the far end of the table, was the owner of the world's biggest technology company. On the flag board, she, she repped a quartet of owners of technology firms known by the internet as a technocracy. Through them, she effectively controlled the engines of censorship so that only those things which served flag's agenda populated print and social media, and she was a distant cousin of Cochrane's. She had an inkling of his true wealth as well, since the word trillionaire was whispered through the family grapevine. But in this room, even here amongst the most affluent citizens of Earth, there could be no doubt who held the most power, and that person was Cochrane. Cochrane's wealth, in the simplest terms, was legendary. He had more wealth than he could ever possibly spend in a thousand lifetimes. And with that wealth came great power. That and the ability to prioritize one's own interest above everything else. Simply put, he was the man who pulled the strings that ran the workings of the world. And there was nothing left about him that was benevolent. On a farm, there comes a point when one must harden their heart against the inevitable slaughter, and for Cochrane and his ilk, it was no different. They had hardened their hearts to the humanity of others a long time ago. They had become the farmers of humans, enslaving their fellow man, woman, and child through technology in the places of earth where resource exists, which makes such things possible, putting them to physical work where they didn't depriving their fellow humans of nutrition and the means to live self-sufficiently on the earth, rendering them dependent on the nipple of industry and pharmaceuticals, feeding them on lies and consumption, along with the nutritionally bereft foods of mass production, keeping them enslaved to their own reliance on the capitalist system or serving it, building the very products and mining the very resources that keep the wheels of consumerism turning, keeping the energy down, in other words, keeping the consciousness low because low consciousness energy served them. It was from low consciousness energy that they drew the majority of their power, that and the unwillingness or perceived inability of the masses to challenge them. By working together, the collective efforts of the flag board members reduced human beings to incinerators of their own habitats. They kept humankind's own magnificence hidden from them, making people unknowing participants in their own spiritual demise, because by doing so, flag was able to keep the money and resources funneling upwards to them. They had ample wealth, more than enough wealth, in fact. They had abundance to last them for lifetimes. Every single one of them did, these flag billionaires. They had more means than they knew what to do with, but that didn't make them magnanimous. Far from it. It made them self-interested, greedy, and unlikable, 
because nothing but their own self-preservation motivated them. And that was the very thing that had brought them here together today. So much, so very much of what they did depended on artifice, on the illusion that what they were doing was not happening, on Dorothy not looking behind the curtain to find out the truth about the wizard on the public never gaining access past the building's blank facade to glimpse the hoarding of luxury that went on behind it. To keep that machinery humming, they were willing to commodify humans, the planet, the universe, space, wildlife, resources, spirituality, and anything right and pure and good in the world, so long as it kept the wheels of their capitalist empire spinning to control who had access to the rarefied air of their circle of power, to keep that circle small and focused and the benefits centered on them. On its incorporation papers, website, and social media propaganda feeds, the Freedom, Liberty, Altruism, Generosity Group, FLAG, was a charitable organization and limited liability company that managed a fund so great as to be astronomical. Their name had been chosen because masking something avaricious by calling it something benevolent was what this group was all about. Their mandate was philanthrocapitalism. They managed an inordinately vast fund of money donated by the billionaires in the room, which was actually nothing more than a means of avoiding taxation. And that fund was used to advance causes that supported their global agenda. Because of the way it was set up to look like a philanthropic charity, most of the common folk believed that the organization did what it claimed to do, which was provide international relief to victims of disasters around the world under the scrutiny of a United Nations ambassador who sat on the board to report back to governments that FLAG's endeavors were on the up and up. That was something the board members snickered about often behind closed doors when they could be sure of being unobserved, that the poor of the world believed in the flag messaging, that their marketing was so successful as to make them seem like a charity worthy of supporting when what they actually were was disaster capitalists bent on the pursuit of acquiring even more wealth. In addition to giving them power and a healthy tax write-off, the flag board gave its members the cover that they needed to hold meetings, get together, and make plans. When a resource remained unexploited, when a natural disaster struck, flag met to determine what profit could be made from it, who amongst them was best poised to take advantage of it, who owned the corporation that was best suited for an arm of it to sweep in, during the aftermath of a hurricane or tsunami, drought, wildfire, flood, or other calamity, and scoop up whatever public services were still owned by the state, doling out some par relief trinkets to fulfill the surface mission of their organization to give them trackable metrics while they bought up services like the drinking water supply of a poor nation and then sold it back to the already impoverished citizens at triple the cost. To keep up appearances and to satisfy the criteria of appearing to be a global philanthropic charity, their token UN ambassador was always in the room at their meetings, 
His name was Lloyd Preston. And at the moment when Cochran joined them, sorry, I'm just getting a little interference here. Give me one second to see if I can fix that. At the moment when Lloyd Preston joined them, I'm new at this, guys. Bear with me. I'm going to get this going again here in one second. I just lost my place. Ah, yes. Preston lent his legitimacy to the board, reported back to his contacts in government that everything was fine, and looked the other way when Flagg's shadier deals were conducted. At the moment, Preston had the brunette straddling his thigh in a skirt so short the white half-moon creases under her buttocks were visible to any in the room who cared to see them. Her bodice opened to Preston's delighted explorations, while on his right, the blonde ran her candy-pink lips down his neck. They'd been paid to distract him from what was going on at the meeting, and distract him they were, because Cochrane did not want him listening too closely to what they were about to discuss. The flag board members were vultures, all right. They were vampires that cannibalized the oppressed, feeding on misery, exploiting the earth and all of the souls who dwelt there for their own personal gain. And they didn't give a shit about the rest of humanity, toiling away, struggling to survive. Occasionally, however, one of their schemes hit a snag, like the one that they had gathered to discuss. There was a disaster unspooling in southwestern Ontario that morning, one that had the potential to crack the all-important veneer and expose the flag board for what it truly was, and so they were meeting to determine how to spin it so that the suspicion didn't lead to them, and to figure out a way how to exploit it for even greater gain. The problem had been caused by the fracking they were doing in the Great Lakes region, the low-level covert fracking that the government didn't allow in and amongst one of the world's largest freshwater supplies, where even though fracking was banned, they'd been doing it anyway. Using a small-scale fracking bore, needle-like almost, with a very small above-ground robotic apparatus that could be hidden from view in a tall, narrow, nondescript shed-like structure with a flare vent outside, they were tapping the shale-rich Great Lakes in the geological feature known as the Michigan Basin, and they had damaged it. The basin was like a bowl in the Earth's mantle, a chalice, you might say, of the gods, because it was the thing that the life-giving resource that was the beautiful, cold, clear water of the Great Lakes had been poured into, and these people had tapped it for money. The gas that they extracted was gathered by a series of pipelines that were hidden underground, which fed a chain of Manico filling stations that had been hurriedly constructed along the 401 corridor to fuel one kind of car only, the Fallon Thrust, the very kind of car that was manufactured in a town called Mount Bridges, where a young woman named Jenna Walters was at that moment cycling to her job as mayor and who had risen to the challenge because of the very kind of cronyism that had made this type of scam possible. Although she didn't yet know all of the details, she was close, very close, to figuring it out. 
The covert small-scale microfracking mechanism had been designed by Lawrence Fallon, who sat on the left-hand side of the table chatting up the beautiful ice princess herself, Cynthia Jennings, who yawned and looked bored as she studiously inspected her perfect French-tipped fingernails. It was Fallon who had designed the custom thrust, a vehicle that ran exclusively on the ill-gotten natural gas sold at the Manico stations, and it was Sir Raleigh Kincaid across the room who owned those. Cochran dropped into his chair at the head of the table and leaned back with his boots out in front of him, surveying the others in the room. So am I to understand that our findings are the same as what we feared? The big boom's going to happen? The nuke? He asked curtly, dispensing with the niceties, directing the question at Stephen Arthur, whose son Anderson was Flagg's resident geophysicist. Stephen said nothing. After a while, with his face turning gray, he gave a single, slow nod. Christ. Cochran rolled his eyes, but in that moment, he thought, Resolute. Operation Resolute was a vision of his, one that he had been preparing for and waiting for the timing to be right, and the thought occurred to him that this might just be it. He felt a thrill of elation burble up inside of him and squashed it down pasting a scornful expression back onto his face. At that moment, Summers came into the room, bringing Eric Cochran his scotch. Cochran took it and held it up in a sardonic toast. Might as well get started then, eh, what? He said, before tossing the contents of the glass down his throat in one swallow and handing the glass back to Summers. One more genius and keep them coming. Sounds like it's going to be a long, shitty day. Summer scurried out of the room to comply. So this concludes today's excerpt. It is January 6th, 2022, and that was the first half of the prologue of my novel, Strike Boat. I thank you for listening if you listened to this point, and I ask if you would be so kind as to share it with anybody that you may find um, might might be interested and also uh this was my first time doing anything like this i know i had uh some technical difficulties in the tail end of it there i learned a lesson which is not to keep my phone on the desk when i'm recording so if you guys have any uh i'll definitely do that next time um, if you have any tips for me on uh, am i going too fast am i going too slow am i speaking loud enough um, or clearly enough, uh, that kind of thing, you could let me know in the comments. That'd be great. And uh, if you have on the, any thoughts on the story so far, uh, leave me a comment on those below as well. All right, that's it, guys. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the rest of your day.